This episode was brought to you by Easy, the new online mobile app that gives you more money in your pocket and less clutter in your home. List, rent, rate, repeat. Easy as. I went to school and my girlfriends were like, why don't you be a pilot instead of a cabin crew? And I was like, yeah, why not? <laughs> and I was just, I just had this mentality like, yeah, I can be whatever I want to be. So yeah, I'll become a pilot. How do you do that? I was always like, I'm not a female pilot. I'm a pilot. Let's just get that straight. I just didn't want to be different. And now it is, as you said, it's so nice to just, and not even just be a woman. Like it's just, you can be who you are in your job. Like no matter whether mm. you're a feminine or you're a tomboy or not, like you can be whoever you want to be as a female and as a pilot. Only those who risk going too far can truly find out how far it's possible to go. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. Welcome to March, beautiful people. I hope your month is off to a wonderful start. International Women's Day is coming up this Sunday the 8th, and I thought we'd dedicate both this episode and next to two women who embody female empowerment, equality, and achievements. To be fair, every woman and man who has generously come on the show has been incredible in a different way, making it pretty much impossible for me to ever have themed special guests. They are also special. But particularly as a woman who has grown up taking the dialogue about women's rights largely for granted and benefiting from the fight of earlier generations like my mum's, I always take a moment to appreciate International Women's Day and, even if there is still work to do, how far we've come towards gender equality. So, who better to join us this week than Emirates pilot Dominique Cott? Growing up in a town of 180 people, aviation isn't exactly the industry you'd expect her to gravitate towards, but her first flight had her hooked. The thing is, she was set on being an air hostess until her school friends suggested she set her sights on the cockpit, surprising her one birthday with a flying lesson. She's never looked back and is now an absolute boss flying for Emirates across the world. As you know, I get so fascinated by the details of other pathways and I loved finding out about qualifying on different aircraft and the first time you fly a jet. Dom shares openly about the highs and lows, including the huge financial commitment of becoming a pilot, the many challenges she faced as a female in an industry that lags behind in equal representation, and going from trying to blend in to wearing her red lippy and makeup to fly with pride. I hope you enjoy as much as I did. All right, Dom, welcome to the show. Thank you so, so much for joining in between your flight schedule on your very, very short 24 hours that you have between jobs. <laughs> My pleasure, Sarah, no worries. I'm so excited to have you on the show today, particularly because I know we've been trying to make time zones work. I think you're in London at the moment. I am. You've done so well to figure out the time zone, though. Like you had it figured out before me because you guys are in daylight savings still and they're the opposite here. They're still in winter. Oh, it just... I can't even get my head around how you even managed to kind of keep a routine or a rhythm going. I'm totally in awe of you and everything that you've managed to do in your career. And you just make the most perfect guest for International Women's Day. So thank you so much for making the time. 
Oh, thank you, Sarah. No, that's not a problem. (laughs) So before we get into the first section, the first question I ask everyone on the podcast is what the most down-to-earth thing is about them, particularly because in this day and age of, you know, digital identities and social media, it can be really easy to create a kind of glossy surface. And I think as a pilot... Often on the outside, it looks very, very glamorous and flying into beautiful destinations and wearing your wings on your shoulders and, you know, all those kinds of things. So what's something really relatable about you? Yeah, it does. It is hard to to say, you know, what makes you grounded. I think for me, it's always your family upbringing like you, and my country roots. I was born in um, Glen Rowan, which was like a town of 180 people. But, um, <laughs> Is that where Ned Kelly's from? <laughs> it's a giant Ned Kelly statue and that's like put us on the map. <laughs> that's the only <laughs> way you would know where it is. <laughs> so it was that, but also I come from a big family. Like mum was one of 11 and dad was one of 13. So Whoa. yeah, and I think that that does make you quite grounded because although you don't have a lot of things materialistically, you're surrounded by love and and family and like your aunties become like your mums and your cousins are like your best friends and stuff. So. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I yeah. love even more that you've managed to make your way to global pilot from a small town where it wasn't obviously that common to be flying in and out of places and you weren't surrounded by flying. So (laughs) I I just think that's such a cool place to begin. You know, the first section is called Way TA, which is the way that you got to where you are. And as we mentioned just before we started recording, where you are currently flying for Emirates is only where you are now. You know, that's the end of the story. There's been a huge, huge journey to get there and it's never kind of an overnight success. It's always multiple, multiple years in the making. So Let's go back to the very start yeah. in Glen Rowan <laughs> with your 180 neighbours. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that you're exploring that. What were you like as a kid? So it was funny because I actually, when I got married to Jordan, our dads got together and they actually hadn't met each other before. And they were talking about us as a kid because I know Jordan was quite wild as a kid. And they were like, it feels like we're talking about the exact same person because we were just terror. Like, I don't know if it's a middle child or what it was, but I was just, I was a tomboy. I was running around. I wanted to do everything. I wanted to be different from everybody else. I was like massive daddy's girl. So I would always go fishing with him and I was out in the paddocks getting dirty and riding around on motorbikes and <laughs> just a country kid, I guess. Wow, country gal. <laughs> yeah, not glamorous, not glamorous at all. <laughs> And what did you think you wanted to be? So I originally wanted to be cabin crew and it started out because dad cashed in his superannuation and he was like, I'm taking everyone on a a family holiday. So it was our one overseas trip that we Ah, ever did. This is to Mauritius, right? Yeah. So he, how did you know that? (laughs) That's good research. Yeah. He took us to Mauritius, (laughs) which is so far, obviously from Australia. And we went over there. I was 14. And for me, we had to go to Melbourne, obviously, to the airport, and I was so blown away. I was like, there's big jets everywhere, people are travelling, there's people saying goodbye to their loved ones, and I was just overwhelmed with the whole aviation industry, and I was like, I am becoming cabin crew. I got on the flight to with Air Mauritius to Mauritius, and um, the cabin crew were just so beautiful. They were speaking Creole, oh, which wow. um, we never learned as kids. Yeah, and I was like, I, I just want to be cabin crew. I want to travel the world, and that's where it started. That's but, um, so I, cool. <laughs> That So it was just an idea really. And then I went to school and my girlfriends were like, well, you're really good at math. Like, why don't you be a pilot instead of a cabin crew? And I was like, yeah, why not? <laughs> and I was just, I just had this mentality like, yeah, I can be whatever I want to be. So yeah, 
I'll become a pilot. How do you do that? I love that. <laughs> and so that was 14 years old, you know, planning the rest of my life. It's pretty funny now. But um, when I was 16, my girlfriends blindfolded me. It was my birthday and they drove me around Aubrey Wodonga. We'd moved up there by then. And when they took the blindfold off, I was at Aubrey Airport. And there was two pilots standing in front of me and they were like, hi, Dominique, are you ready to go flying? And they took me for a flight for my 16th birthday. That is the coolest thing ever. I, I, <laughs> when I was researching for this, I read that that was how it happened was literally from a dream of becoming, you know, an air hostess to literally your friends hijacking that dream and planning lessons for you. That is a, the most thoughtful present ever. Yeah. And B, the coolest way to, for a dream to begin. How random. It's a great way for a dream to begin because you're already starting off with so much support, like pushing you in that direction. And at the time, we probably didn't know this because we're 16 years old. But yeah, they, they changed my life forever. And one of them still, Robin, she's in Dubai with me now. So it's amazing that she's still there at the end of the journey. Like she's in Dubai. And uh, my girlfriend, when I got my first jet endorsement in America, I did my Airbus endorsement. She met me, Karen, she met me afterwards and we went to Mexico and we just celebrated like, you know, it's been a decade and oh, like this is where we are now. Gosh, that is so beautiful. Yeah. And I love <laughs> that you went to Catholic college in Wodonga. I did, yeah. I don't imagine that one of the career paths that the careers counsellor sort of sits you down in year, you know, year 10 as you're going into VCE and says to you, why don't you become a pilot? Like I just don't think it's something that many of us actually consider, particularly back then when female pilots were, ve- they still are quite rare, but very, very rare back then I, I don't think many people could even name one of the like Amelia Earhart but how did you then go about turning the dream into like I'm actually going to study and for those of us who don't actually know how you qualify as a pilot how you know how do you actually get your wings how many hours do you need to do do you have to start on really small planes and then work up to a Boeing like how does that all work yeah it's like it's a huge question actually because there's so many different elements to it but I'm glad you brought up my careers coordinator because I don't often get to talk about her, but her name was Catherine Van Egwon and she was my biggest supporter. So she, I went to her office and I was like, I want to become a pilot. And she was like, (laughs) okay, right. And instead of turning me back and I meet so many pilots where their teachers or their careers coordinators have said, no, you're not smart enough. It's too expensive or they've turned them away. Whereas Catherine, she passed away sadly of breast cancer around the time that my mum did. So I just want, it's, it's nice to be able to talk about her because she got behind me. She got the principal at the school together with the flying school, together with my parents. And she was like, we're going to help Dominique to become a pilot. So we, they made some free classes for me in year 11. And in the free classes, I got all the books from the flying school and I self-studied. So I self-studied the, the first few exams on the way to my general, it's, it's called GFPT. It's your first license that you get. And um, that's how it all started. So I started at Catholic College in Wodonga, full support from the school. And then the year that I graduated, I actually came back to the school and I started explaining to people like, you know, that was back in the days where everyone was supposed to go to uni, everyone was supposed to have a a degree. And I went and did a speech to the school about, you know, you can chase your dream, you can start early, you don't have to go to university. Oh my gosh. It was like pivotal, yeah, in the the beginning. That is such a beautiful story. (laughs) It's so nice, yeah. And I never get to talk about it, so I'm glad that you brought it up. But that helped me because I I just started flying. I just got in an aeroplane. I didn't have much money, so I... I didn't really get to fly much. So it was actually quite challenging because you're supposed to do the theory alongside the flying. So you go to the airport, you do a couple of hours flying with an instructor, and then you do the the theory that supports what you're learning. But I didn't have the money to do the flying. So I was just doing all theory. So I was sitting at school 
learning about steep turns or you know flying straight and level or the forces acting on an airplane and I was like I don't understand (laughs) I don't understand so I would have a book of questions and I was like I just I don't understand any of this so I'd go to the flying school on the weekend and and an instructor would run through it with me and that's kind of how it started but I think for anyone who wants to become a pilot I think you just need to get in an airplane you need to get to a flying school and you need to keep it simple because you can look up forever what's the best flying school what's the best way to save money but I think just start somewhere I think that's the same for any dream as well is you can get so overwhelmed the more you research the more you look up the best way to do things you can get so kind of scared away by how much information there is that you never actually make a start and it's just about starting somewhere really and the the sooner you start the sooner you'll figure out what the next step is. Yeah and I think for people in aviation you have to be prepared to go into debt not everyone obviously people have parents that can support them but for me I had to look at $77,000 and I had to figure out how I was going to tackle it. Mm. And then I had to get my parents behind it, which took a couple of years. They were like, you are not becoming a pilot. That was like their initial reaction. (laughs) (laughs) Like, absolutely not. You've got four other kids in the family. And then I was like, well, I'm going to do it. So for me, it wasn't like, oh, I can't do it. It was like, well, how else can I do it then? So I think with that mentality, that's how I just kept pursuing it and pushing and pushing and pushing to make it happen. And once I went into that financial debt, I think that was also a huge drive for me. Like you've spent the money now, you've got to pay it off, you've got to make this career work. I love also hearing that, you know, realistically you do probably have to think about that. It's not something that is easy and that's super accessible and if you don't have family funding, I love hearing A, that it's possible, but B, that it does take a little bit of planning and you have to be prepared for that kind of hit. But I think there's always a risk in in following your dreams and it's just about managing it and you can tell how passionate you are about the dream I love that you were just like it's not a no it's just a how else am I going to make it work yeah I was pretty fearless back then I think most people are when you're when you're younger I would do anything I would try anything and I would throw myself into anything whereas now you're obviously a bit more cautious with a bit more life experience so I love the person that I was when I was 16 with all that courage. Naivety is kind of amazing. I think all of us looking back at the start of any big dream is just you having not a clue, which works in your favour because then you just start and you don't even know any better. But I also really love hearing that in the place that I probably would have expected to be the least, not the least supportive, but maybe the least... Not the best place for you to necessarily jump into aviation. Like I kind of think of a small country town that doesn't have an <laughs> airport and, you know, that, I, I, that a careers counsellor wouldn't have even considered you doing at flight school. I love that that's actually where you got the most support, that they just were like, no, we'll make time for you in your schedule. And it's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's so astounding. I've got so many feels for small communities because it's, it's those people individual people and individual decisions along the way that make it possible for you and that's what I want to highlight as well like because we'll obviously talk about my early career and the setbacks and the negative things that come out of that I do want to make a point of the fact that along the way I've been people have walked into my life at the right time and they have given me support they have given me for example like flying hours a guy um, that I knew Don let me fly in his barren, like this small twin engine aeroplane because I'd been made redundant and I didn't know what I was going to do. So along the way, there's been people come out of nowhere that have helped me along my way. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's quite a nice story. Like as much as it's it's been tough, there's been people that are the reason that I'm where I am today as well. Yeah, we say it takes a village for kind of any kind of dream <laughs> or project. <laughs> Absolutely. So after you did graduate, I read somewhere that you did a thesis on Deborah Laurie, who was the first female pilot for an airline in Australia and later actually got to work with her at an airline. But 
Do you actually have to do a thesis to get your flight qualifications or was that kind of a further study that you did? How many years did it take you to be able to fly? And yeah, how do you qualify on different aircraft and all that kind of thing? Like how does it actually work mechanically? (laughs) (laughs) I'm so impressed. I'm so impressed, Sarah, because you're asking such great questions, especially if there's pilots listening to this. These are the questions that they're asking as well. So, Oh, really? Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, 100% because it is difficult and there's so many different pathways. And I always say to people, every pathway will lead to the same destination. You've just got to persist. So, And it doesn't matter the way that you do it as long as you, you do do it and you get out there. So my pathway was I went to university. I applied to Swinburne University in Melbourne, but that was because I could spread the flying out over three years and I could figure out how best to tackle the financial situation because you could do it in a year and a half if you fast tracked it but that would mean in a year and a half I'd have to figure out how to pay (laughs) $77,000 so I thought I can put some on hex I can get a degree and then I I saw that all the Qantas cadets were doing an associate degree with Swinburne so I thought if I ever want to get into Qantas having a degree would would be a good thing Mm -hmm. so even though I told everyone you don't need a degree to go and chase your dreams in this particular circumstance I did choose to do a degree and I have it now and it it will help me say if you went to America all the airline pilots have to have a degree now but when we graduated we were (laughs) we're in our early 20s we were like this degree is useless we might as well have cut it off at cornflakes box like it's (laughs) it doesn't do anything and we were like we spent so much money like having a bachelor but we were, we were obviously wrong but the, the thing is like to get into an airline you didn't actually need a degree in Australia you just needed to have the correct flying hours all the airlines have a minimum hour requirement okay so how much experience you've got and if you've got the minimum requirements then they'll interview you if you do well in the interview then you'll get the job the degree would just kind of give you a leg up I guess and does that do those hours all have to be on the same aircraft? Like do you start on sort of tiny planes and then I imagine you don't just get straight into a 747 and just like fly. Like how do you actually build up from tiny planes to big planes? And if you don't want to go commercial and you want to just do private flying or you do want to go commercial, like when at what point do you split or is there just one broad qualification? So look at you throwing out all these commercial uh, licenses. <laughs> maybe I want to be a pilot. Like maybe I want to do this. <laughs> You've already had a couple of careers in one lifetime, so why not? <laughs> so, yeah, you, you can be a private pilot. A lot of people with farms, they'll become a private pilot because basically you can fly around with your private pilot's license. The commercial pilot's license basically gives you permission to fly for money. That's how I like to simplify it. So if you want to fly around by yourself with your friends, a private pilot license is perfect. For me, a lot of my friends went straight into Qantas Link, which is the Dash 8s that fly into Aubrey, for example. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to go, I got to a point where I needed to choose between doing my instructor rating or my instrument rating. So at the end of your flying training, you get about a couple of hundred hours under your belt and you're ready to work. And in Europe, you go straight onto a jet. So you'll have 200 hours, 300 hours. And the people that I fly with at Emirates, they went into Ryanair with that many hours. And that's amazing. That's such great experience to get on a 737 and fly all around Europe and the UK in a 737 with such minimal hours is is very lucky. But Australia is very different. Like I think I got onto a jet with 2,500 hours. Whoa. Um, and that was all, yeah. That was all my bush flying. And there was a few reasons why. Like I graduated into the GFC around 2008. I did read so, that, yeah. Yeah. So I, I got this scholarship that I applied for because – the university was offering a scholarship and basically you get a job on a Metroliner, which is like a, 
It's a turboprop aircraft. They call it the flying pencil. It's quite long and it's got 19 seats and it has two pilots. So that was still a really, really good job for me to come out of uni. But then when the GFC hit, their, they lost the scholarship. They closed bases with that, that company. And so I, I started out, I was working in a bar. I was wondering what I was going to do. And my friend Rowan came up to my bar and he was like, hey, I have a job. I'm like, I'm leaving this job. It's in Bridgewater, just north of Melbourne, and it's flying skydivers out of a paddock. And I was like, oh, I'll take it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so it wasn't so much I got to choose which aeroplanes I flew. It was that I would fly any aeroplane that someone was going to pay me to fly. <laughs> I wanted the hours in my logbook and every hour counts. Every hour goes in your logbook and it adds up. And then over time, as you can see, like, you know, I got the 2,500 hours to get into an airline, like with a jet in, in Australia. Oh. So it was just chipping away and getting hours wherever I could. What do you even feel like the first time you get into a jet? It's like a multi-million dollar aircraft with so many people on it like I, I imagine once you've done it a few times you kind of desensitize a little bit and get used to it but the first time you got in what was that like? It was actually amazing so I went to America and I they put me in simulators and I did my Airbus 320 endorsement over there so what they do is the simulators they're so realistic that when you do all your training in it and you get what's called an endorsement at the end of your training and that gives you the license to fly like you said, like fly a jet with passengers. Then pretty much as soon as you come to Tiger and, and you, I started, the first time you get in a jet, you've got passengers there. So it's very <laughs> fast paced. Everything's happening so fast and you're just trying to hold on to the, the tail of the aircraft seriously as it's flying. I had a, an instructor and he's amazing and his name's Doug and he called me up the day before and he's like, G'day, Dominique. I hear you're flying a jet for the first time tomorrow. <laughs> and he was like, oh, we're just going to go out and have fun, aren't we? And I was like, so nervous. I was like, yeah, okay, Doug. And he's like, I remember the first time I flew an aircraft. And he was telling me all these war stories about years and years ago when he first flew a jet. And it was like it was my birthday. Like he made it such a big deal. We took off. <laughs> and he was like, disconnect autopilot and let's hand fly this thing. And like it was just, it was really good, really Whoa. practical. Yeah, really good fun. Amazing experience. How many years between um, graduating and that flight were there? So that was probably around 2013, around January, and I graduated in 2009 out of university. So there was a lot of bush flying in between there. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah. So, and as I was saying before, like what led me to do that was I, most of my friends did an instructor rating. And so they could go to a flying school and then now they were instructors. So straight out of training, they were now teaching flying to you know the 16 year olds like me that were coming up so <laughs> it's a great job like because they've been flying around in Cessnas which are those four-seater little airplanes yeah and you're straight on the payroll you're getting hours in your logbook which is great but I couldn't afford to do my instructor rating and my instrument rating and all pilots need to do an instrument rating because basically that helps you to fly at night time through cloud basically fly on instruments without being able to see outside so it's a requirement for everyone to have but I couldn't afford to do both so I did my instrument rating which meant I couldn't become an instructor which meant I needed to go fly in a paddock and fly skydivers out in Bridgewater. <laughs> <laughs> so was Tiger your first commercial gig? Yeah it was it's a bit different I flew before that I flew Dash 8 for Skippers Aviation out of Perth and that was more it's still commercial, but we're, we're flying miners into mine sites oh, out in Western yeah. Australia. So technically in pilot speak, it's still commercial flying and, and paid and it was an amazing job. That was probably my first job where I had a pinch me moment because I was like, all right, I made it. I can pay off my debt. 
I can get hours up. I'm in good aircraft. I've got other pilots with me with more experience. And that was the first time I became a first officer because before that I was flying around by myself in twin engine piston aircraft around like northern Australia. I know that for you it probably sounds quite normal, but I'm literally just, (laughs) my jaw is on the ground. The (laughs) fact that you're even like, I was flying around by myself and like all the different aircraft names. This is so fancy. (laughs) I know you're going to have to, if you don't understand anything, because it's quite technical and we've got our own terms. So if you don't understand anything, just. Oh no. So Nick, um, my husband is, uh, he has one of his random businesses. He has a lot of them is taking photos of uh, power poles pretty much after Black Saturday uh, a couple of years ago, the bad bushfires, he takes photos out of helicopters. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that engineers don't have to, like, physically drive and climb each pole. He runs the helicopters um, with one of his best friends. They don't fly in them anymore, but they they started – the business together and now they have pilots flying and he's obsessed with aviation like he got into adverb <laughs> when he was younger and he really wanted to I don't know if he wanted to be a pilot but he loves aviation and he like makes me we'll spot planes in the sky planes or helicopters and he'll make me like pick out which model it is based on like <laughs> yeah so I, I yeah like not bad now like I know all the different helicopters I'm better with choppers than planes but he made me learn dash eights and um, Cessnas. Like oh, I know, really? yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. That's why I'm so excited <laughs> to talk to you about it. I'm like, now I actually understand. No yeah, yeah. Cool. and he's from Tassie, so we fly on dash eights all the time. <laughs> yeah, you would. That's amazing. I think I would actually disappoint Nick because I remember I always felt so out of my depth because everyone was so into aviation. Their parents had been in aviation. They knew aeroplanes and they knew everything. I like bumbled my way in from the country and was like, hey, and then I was like, what's that? And they're like. That's a 737. I was like, okay. Cool. <laughs> and like I did not I did not know what aircraft it was unless I'd been inside it and I'd flown it and I had an endorsement on it. And then I was like, okay, I know, I know what this aeroplane is. That's a Cessna. <laughs> that's a Dash 8 and that's a 320 and then that's about as far as it goes. <laughs> oh, man. And I love that even more that it just goes to show that you don't necessarily have to come from an aviation family that has lots of money no. to send you on, you know, flight hours. And I think that is – probably one of the most difficult things is the perception that the barriers to entry of this career are really high, which of course they are. But I love that you're a really beaming example of the fact that as a woman, as a country girl, and as a complete outlier, you've been able to forge a really wonderful, wonderful career. Yeah. You basically just fake it till you make it, Sarah. (laughs) I'd be good at doing that. Um, Because it is, it's so overwhelming. Like I remember coming to class for the first time and people had already flown, as I had done a little bit of flying in Aubrey before I came. So every time they asked a question in class, everyone already knew the answer. And I was like, hang on, what? Are we supposed to have studied already? Like everyone knew everything and everyone was so smart and I was just like, this is overwhelming. <laughs> Not many people had come from the country. So I was trying to pay rent, work four jobs, study and keep on top. Whereas like everyone else was from Melbourne, like, you know, they were driving their parents' car to university and stuff. And I was just like, I had a lot of other things going on outside of just the university part of it and trying to handle the debt and how I was going to pay that. So yeah, it's, it was very overwhelming and it took a lot of courage to just keep pushing through, even though I had days where I was like, are you really going to make it? Like I questioned myself <laughs> all the time and I was like, yeah, 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 we're going to do it. Oh gosh, I can imagine. There's a, and the whole next section is called NATA, which is pretty much all the challenges that come you know, along the way in the way of your joy. And I definitely want to come back to particularly the challenge as a woman in a very male-dominated industry. But before we get there, just to round off the journey, now 
what does your life look like? How do you manage the time zones and like the cabin pressure on your skin? And, you know, you're flying, how many continents are you flying at a time? Yeah. What is your day-to-day life as a pilot actually like now? Yeah. So basically we get our roster and it's really exciting because it shows our next month and it's anywhere in the world you could be flying to. There are rules with every airline about whether you can fly east and west and and maximizing your time to sleep and recover from flights. I mean, this month I was flying all to Europe. And then if I fly to Australia, then I can't fly across to the US. And so the time zones are figured out so that you're normally flying to one area, but you can bid for what you want. You can swap. Like we've got so much room to, and flexibility to have the rosters that we want so it's it's quite good like there's not been anywhere that I haven't flown yet that I really really wanted to there are a few that were on my list like the Maldives and the Seychelles and and flying back into Melbourne in a jet and things like that that I've done that is um, so cool. So yeah. I don't think I, – I think a lot of us assume that you're kind of put on a route and then you just go back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> it's so cool that you yeah. can bid for different locations and end up kind of anywhere really that you want to end up. It's amazing because people can go home. So like I flew Jordan – I'm in London. I flew Jordan here. He's moving back for the cricket season. So I, I uh, put him on my flight and I flew him and we're just hanging out at our home in Wimbledon and then I'll fly back tonight back to Dubai. So – yeah, there's heaps of flexibility and it connects a lot of people with their family still, which is nice. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. Again, I'm sure something <laughs> that you you totally take for granted that you've got a long haul flight <laughs> here and there and we're just like, once a year I get on a plane. <laughs> I know. How do you manage like jet lag? And do you find that because, you know, I know when I fly, my skin goes a bit funny because of cabin pressure and all that kind of stuff. Like how do you manage your sleep and your circadian rhythms and like landing in different climates and all that stuff? Do you just get used to it? You do get used to it because you see the captains that have been here for 20 years and it's just no big deal to them. Whereas I'm like, dehydration and my skin's dry and my eyeballs are dry and <laughs> I need to drink more water. And they're just like, oh, yeah, I'll have some tea. And I'm like, oh, you're drinking so much caffeine. And, and they just, they've got it sorted. Like they sleep, they know when they sleep. Do you know what happens? You have to kind of make sacrifices. You you can't burn the candle at both ends. You've got to stop trying to do so much. And they give you your time to rest. You've got to use your time to rest properly mm. and you've got to sleep when you get given the time to sleep and how do you guys eat during the flight like I know so there's always two of you right there's always two pilots so one of you will be able to eat while the other one's flying <laughs> yeah so basically there's two pilots and then if we do long flights to America and Australia for example there'll be four pilots and that's why we utilize the crew rest so we sleep up in the crew rest during the flight and then we come back we always have four pilots for takeoff and landing. Oh, I didn't know that. That's so cool. Yeah. Because if you've got like a 15-hour flight, it's too long yeah. to have two people in the flight deck at all all times. And that's what we do. We always have two people up there. And, yeah, the food is amazing. <laughs> We're very, very, very lucky. And my husband always talks about how much he loves the food that he gets on the aircraft. Most of it's cooked fresh for us daily, so we have access to amazing dishes. And I bring my own food as well. That's so funny that for you that's just going to work. Like we all take our lunch to the office and, like, put it in the fridge and you're like, yeah, I'll just jump on the plane with my BYO lunch. <laughs> well, yeah, because I worked at Tiger and that's obviously, like, a low-cost airline and, you know, we didn't get food there. It's, a, it's a similar to Ryanair. So I really appreciate the fact that we are given food and have access to food. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's hot. Like they put it in the oven and they bring it to the flight deck and you're like, this is amazing. I'm at 36,000 feet and I'm eating like a hot meal. 
Yeah, that's so cool. Like recently I um did my first upgrade ever to business and I was like, what? You mean they can actually make food and they have all us economy people here thinking that they just have to reheat something that's pre-made? <laughs> <laughs> it's eye-opening, isn't it? Do you know, it's funny you say that because I flew over for my interview and they put me in business class and I had been working for a low-cost airline and I was like, okay, I've been flying for 10 years. Well, I started, you know, 10 years ago and I was like, why have I never flown business class? There's people who were like, oh, my friend's sister's husband's like cousin knows someone at Qantas. So we got business class and I'm like, I still haven't flown business class. So the first time I flew business class was to my interview and I was like, sold, I'll take the job. You give it to me. <laughs> and I got on the aircraft and the, the um, flight attendant came up and she's like, is there anything that I can do like to help you? And I was like, I don't know how to make anything work. Like, <laughs> where is the light switch? Like, I was like, I honestly don't know what I'm doing in, in business class. It's so overwhelming and there's so much there. And I was like. And you can tell, like, everyone who's there is probably there all the time. And we're totally the noob who, like, gets in the pajamas too early and, like, doesn't know when they're going <laughs> to fold out the mattress and stuff. I was, like, taking yeah. photos of everything. And everyone around me was just like, can you get out of this class? Like, you are so <laughs> embarrassing. Oh, I love those people. <laughs> I got so excited. That was totally and then I was going for an interview too, so I was trying to be on my best behavior. So they were like, Would you like a champagne? And I was like, Oh, no, no. <laughs> I didn't even get to utilize, like, you know, the welcome on board champagne and all the amazing things that em- Emirates have. So, oh, that's such a shame. Yeah. <laughs> so, the next section, which I think is probably quite an important one for International Women's Day and, and particularly in the aviation industry, is, is the NATA, the biggest challenges along the way. And I was reading in another interview that you did that India, of all places, places, which I find quite interesting is, you know, leading the way with female pilots, but leading the way is with a 15% ratio. Like (laughs) that's the leading figure. It just blew my mind. Like coming from a legal background, I'm well aware of male dominated industries, but not to the point of 15%. That's just crazy. It's funny, isn't it? I just did a Chennai actually. It was my second last flight last week. And I was getting off the bus at the airport and the guy that worked at the airport was like, hello, madam, very happy to have you. And uh, I've never seen a woman before. And I was like, but I was like, India has the most amount of female pilots in the world. And he was like, yeah. And he's like, but I haven't seen an Emirates female pilot. And he's like, I just want to say welcome. I'm very happy to have you. I was like, that is so sweet. Wow. (laughs) Do you get a lot of shock? Like people just being thinking that you're in your uniform because you're an air hostess and then being like, oh, wait. What? Yeah, if I walk down the plane, because sometimes I've got to go set up the crew rest before we take off. So I've got to walk down to the back of the plane. And like sometimes people will order drinks or all sorts <laughs> of things. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I, and I just, do you know what I do? I take the order and then I tell cabin crew because I don't want to tell them and embarrass them like, oh, sorry. No, I'm not. I'm not cabin crew. Oh, that's so sweet of you. <laughs> I'd be <laughs> like, mm-hmm, I fly this plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm used to it. People, when you walk around like, uh, say like a mall or something when I used to finish my flying training and we were in our uniforms people would think we're security guards so they're like excuse me uh, where's the toilet <laughs> and I'd point out the toilet you're course. like at the back of my plane <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah <laughs> especially through some airports like the cabin crew will be like can you see that everyone's staring at us and I'm like yeah because people just they see you in your pilot uniform and I think it's just like maybe they've never seen it maybe they didn't know that female pilots were like a thing so it's still, yeah, it's still <laughs> like a, a thing <laughs> it happens yeah I even imagine like not even imagine I mean the first time I heard of it I was like what a young female pilot that is so cool connect me with her immediately <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I love that. And I'm I'm not young anymore. Everyone says that the cabin crew is so nice to me. They're like, oh, you're so young for like being a first officer. And I'm like, I'm not young anymore. I'm 33 now this year. Babe, that's so young to be a pilot anyway. <laughs> like, <laughs> Especially the pilots we're used to seeing. They're never like young, up and coming, you know, early 30s females. It's just not a thing that you see. No. But then when you go overseas, like to Europe, there's beautiful young female pilots walk around everywhere. Wow. So Australia, we're so behind. Yeah, and in this next um, segment, we'll we'll see how just how behind Australia is. Poor Australia. Yeah, di- I mean, dive straight in because it's something that I think we're generally not super behind in a lot of areas, and it surprises me so much that one particular industry is lagging so much. Yeah, so I think I went obviously. So I told you that I went and flew in a paddock. Oh, sorry, babe. Are you running water? Oh, my husband's, yeah, running water. He's, he's washing up in the kitchen. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, yeah. When I first came to the, the paddock and it was my first day on my first job that I was getting paid for, I get to the paddock in Bridgewater and there's a car next to the Cessna and there's jumper leads and they had jumper leads going from the car to the aeroplane and I I was like, are they jump starting the aeroplane? <laughs> I'll never forget. Like that was a, my first job, my first like experience with like turning up to work. And here's a, a car jump starting the aeroplane that I was supposed to fly. <laughs> oh, wow. Safe. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a good introduction into like how my career kind of started. <laughs> A quick word on this episode's sponsor, since you know I love sharing the things that make my life easier. Did you know we spend $46 trillion per year on goods and services, and yet 80% of Aussies believe they consume more than what they need? I'm a big believer in maximizing what you have or have access to in order to make a little extra cash or to save it. That's why I'm so excited about Easy, a new mobile app for us to rent the things we need without paying for them to sit around when we don't. That's more money in your pocket and less clutter in your home. Download, sign up and list on Easy by searching Easy, that's E-A-S-E-E, in the App Store or Google Play. Usually you get one month of commission-free listing, but all the Seize the A listeners receive three months free by using my code Seize the A. Easy as. So where did you want me to start with the question? I guess just, yeah, I guess just any adversity really that you faced as a woman, as a young person, as an outsider to the industry, I think self-doubt is one of the biggest things we face as it is, let alone when kind of everyone else around you is also doubting your ability to do something. Yeah. And I guess honing in really on the gender aspect of the challenges that you faced which I can imagine are quite a big part of it anyway yeah so there's a couple so that that first job that I had I was flying around happily the skydivers were teaching me how to um fly where the drop zone was how to do my job and I had this boss and he was lovely but then four months into my job there was a silent partner that had come over and they'd been selling it to me like this guy's been in Saudi Arabia he's got eight bullet holes in his back he's like this gnarly big burly guy and I was like frightened of this guy and he turned up and one of the first things he said to me was we don't hire women and I was like so I've been here for four months so it looks like you do hire women (laughs) and I was like oh Oh and so I was so scared of him and so all I did was I kept working really hard like I'd push the airplane back by myself in between these two shipping containers at night time when they're all in the bar and having dinner. I used to get a hose that was connected to a drum and I'd have to put it over my shoulder, climb up a ladder to the top of the aeroplane, put it in, and then I'd have to pump the fuel 
all the way from the drum up the hose into the tank and one turn was like one litre and I'd have to do like 90 litres just for one, one, enough <gasps> for one job. <laughs> so it was quite a physical job and I was like, I am not going to fail at this. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work hard. So I was doing all by myself, didn't want any help. And by the end of it, my boss was like, he warmed to me. He'd bring me lunch like out to the aeroplane. He'd help me push it back at night. He made sure the skydivers knew that I ate first before like no one was to eat dinner until I got in and had my dinner and it really turned around but <laughs> oh, that's really I'm glad it turned around <laughs> <laughs> so that was like that was a good introduction into what I was to expect in general we call it general aviation over the next couple of years I flew in Lilydale I was flying skydivers there as well and then I actually got made redundant because a man turned up and said, my wife earns a lot of money. I'll do her job for free. And he took my job. They made me redundant. <gasps> I ended up without a job and no money and still trying to pay off this debt. So I was devastated. So I was forced out of Melbourne because there was no other work there. I packed my car. I had $700 in my bank and I just drove. I just drove north and I had a friend in Cairns that had a couch that I could sleep on and I just went for it. So I went up there. I worked in bars looking for jobs. Everyone was like, you don't have enough experience. And then I walked into, <laughs> first I started cleaning aeroplanes. So I knew that the, the company that cleaned all the aeroplanes cleaned the uh, aeroplanes of the jobs that I wanted. So basically I was cleaning the aircraft that I wanted to fly and I thought that that would get a foot in the door so I could meet the bosses. Oh and my so gosh. <laughs> So I was cleaning like airplanes that had come from PNG and all sorts and it was not glamorous at all. I was working in a bar in my spare time and then one day I walked into the office of the company that I got a job with there and the boss was like, do you have a flying outfit? And I was like, yeah, it's at home. He's like, pack a bag. I'm going to fly to Townsville. I'm going to give you a chieftain endorsement, which is like 10-seater twin piston engine aircraft. So I then I flew, I flew there and he gave me this endorsement and people's People were like gobsmacked because they were like, why have you been given this job? A, we don't need pilots in the company and he's just paying for your endorsement and giving it to you and that's like unheard of. But it was kind of like well, I got there and he put me up in a hotel and then he tried to come into the hotel and then oh, um, and no. this, this guy was like a married man. And so it was kind of like it was a hard job to accept because you were like you wanted the flying hours but then you were like I'm not sure where this is going and so I turn up to work some days and he's like all right you're not flying today you're getting your bikinis and you're promoting at the golf and I was like oh but I'm a pilot and um he's like I can't wait until the people from this other like the competitor can't wait till they see you flying your bikinis over to Palm Island and I was like why am I flying my bikinis? I was like, oh, absolutely not. Is this a thing? I was like, I'm not flying my bikinis, no. And it was just like all sorts of things like that would happen. If I said no to him, then he would threaten me with being fired. There was a, an instance where I was up in an Aboriginal community and I'd flown all day. I'd reached my max duty. He's called me up and he's like, uh, there's a community where some drugs are being let in and there's a guy running around with a machete. You've got to come in and fly all the people out like the workers in the night and I was like I can't actually do that though because I've already done my max hours so I can't if I do that that's illegal and also I need to be able to fly back first thing in the morning bring all our passengers back to Cairns and then he was like well you're fired and I was like so am I fired now or am I fired after I fly back to Cairns (laughs) I'm so confused (laughs) I was always fired for everything so it sounds funny now but it was it was very like difficult to navigate when you're you need the job you need the flying hours, you need the money. And they take advantage of that. Completely taking advantage. And like, 
I found out when I left, he hadn't even paid my superannuation or my tax, all sorts of things like that. And <sighs> these are the things that you don't hear about in the general aviation world. Like there's, there's stories like this. He'd bring an aeroplane up and he'd try and get me to fly. And then I found out that I'm not supposed to be flying. I'm supposed to be going into maintenance. Like it was just, there's so much commercial pressure all the time. And it was, you know, you're trying mm. to stick to the rules, fly safely get all the passengers there safely. And then you, you constantly had this boss that was like, you know, it's it's hard with the general aviation companies to make money. So everything is so tight. Like there's a few airports up north where the, the fuel is really expensive. So you're not allowed to fly to that airport to refuel. So now you've got to carry enough fuel to get to a further destination to get fuel there because it's cheaper. Like it, I think it's probably one of the hardest mm. jobs that I ever had because it was flying single pilot. I had no weather radar. I had no autopilot and I was flying all around in bad weather in the wet season up in the northern northern parts of Australia where, you know, you wouldn't see the ground sometimes for two hours because <gasps> you're just flying in cloud. And so you're flying by yourself with no autopilot. So it's, it's like very challenging. I can't even imagine having to keep a cool head on your shoulders without being able to see the ground and knowing that, you know, you don't have autopilot and you don't have all these things kind of to hold you up. Like they're the challenges that no one really hears about. I mean, you don't know, yeah. unless you know a pilot, you don't know that they're the hours you have to put in first. Yeah, and you don't have the experience. You have the knowledge that you, you're supposed to, you've got the rule book. And when I got there, my best friend Tully was like, this is a Jefferson. This is all you need to know to keep yourself alive and safe. And so I knew everything that I had to know. And um, yeah, I was just as conservative as I could be in an operation that was quite challenging. I always think, you know, pretty much every story that's come on the podcast has had self-doubt, particularly for women, but really everyone has self-doubt to an extent in the beginnings of their career and then at random moments throughout time. But I can imagine for you where it's literally a life and death situation that you you don't have as much time to sort of doubt your skills. You just have to take action if if your plane like goes out of control or you lose sight of the ground or you can't see the horizon. But how how do you manage in those moments? Like have there been times where you you do doubt yourself in in a cri- kind of critical crisis situation? Yeah, well, I guess it's all part of facing adversity, isn't it? And I didn't realise how I acted in an emergency situation until I had an engine failure. So I had an engine failure in a Cessna and I actually landed in a paddock. So, and I... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and you don't have time. So the training kind of comes into play and how cool, calm and collected you can stay, I guess. So I knew what I had to do. I knew... Like I found a paddock that I was going to land in and then as I got closer to the ground, I realised that that was a tomato crop. I couldn't land there so I chose a new a new paddock and I was about 4,500 feet so it wasn't much time before I actually landed in the paddock. So I put out a mayday call and I landed, yeah, I glided into a paddock all by myself and oh. and then I kind of got out. I was in, I was in shock because I was like couldn't figure out how I'd just come to be in this paddock and then these two farmers like drove up and they were like oh my goodness like we heard the engine cut out and then we were so worried what we're going to find and then yeah I basically got rescued by two farmers and they took me home and like I used the phone and they ran me a bath and everything and I was like (laughs) yeah the shot kind of set in later and I was like I can't believe I survived that because I'd seen so many engine phase where it didn't work out well for the plane or the pilot so I was very 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 lucky. I don't know anyone I've never encountered another person who has ever actually had to use a mayday call in real life that is the coolest <laughs> the coolest thing I've ever heard even though it's not actually cool like it's desperately dangerous but like also kind of cool <laughs> yeah I know because I still tell captains that I fly with now and like 
they've never done that. Some of them have, some of them haven't. And it, it's not something that happens in a pilot's career. It's not something that should it's happen. It's common, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I called up um, my best friend first, Ryan, and I was like, Ryan, I'm in a paddock. And he was like laughing because he didn't think that I was serious. And then when he realised I was I was serious. I was like, who do I call? Like, what do I do? And then he's like, okay, we've got to call air traffic control. So he gave me the number and I called them and I was like, hi, I just put out a mayday. And they're like, yeah, that was you. Are you okay? And I was like, yeah. They're like, we sent out like two aircraft and a helicopter to come get you. And I was like, I'm okay. Like two farmers have got me. I've got Um, a bath running. I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So and I mean, that was like my, in my first job. So I only had two or 300 hours. Like I was the greenest I'd ever been with the least experience. And I was dealing with one of the biggest things that a pilot could ever do with in their career. So oh yeah, I had put it down to luck though. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that's probably part of all the training that you do have to do is so that you, even those 200, 300 hours are probably all preparing you for that moment. Yeah. But on that note, do you find that as a woman, you have to kind of share stories like that and show your skills a little bit more like do people ever underestimate your ability because either you look female or you look young like do you face in your career since then have you faced I don't know if it's skepticism or just I don't know like uh, any kind of other obstacles that because it's not common to see a, a female pilot yeah definitely so for the first few years from 19 onwards to about till I got into skipper's aviation I think which was when I was about 25 so those those years between 19 and 25 was me trying to blend in not wear makeup put oils in planes I learned how to do like we can do what's called 50 hourly so you do like an oil and filter change so I just like learned how to do it and I would do it for my bosses um, which saves them money so I would get the oil filter drain the oil you know push the airplane around and I I just wanted to blend in do what the guys would be doing so I didn't want to do anything glamorous I didn't want to turn up to work you know wearing makeup or looking feminine so I was just like in my denim shorts and my t-shirt flying around in these airplanes for the skydivers and doing I was going and doing the maintenance with uh, the engineers as well and I was learning and I was actually enjoying it because that's kind of how I grew up as a kid anyway Mm. but um it wasn't until I started trying to find work so this employer that I was talking about in Cairns he eventually made me redundant and so I was redundant again for a second time and which is scary because you're just like I don't know I'm back to working in bars like I'm still trying to pay off this flying loan and my mum's calling me up in tears being like are you sure you don't want to do anything else? And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going to do it. And I, I did have a lot of self-doubt because I didn't know what was going to happen or what the industry was going to do because it was a hard time for Australia and globally mm. with the recession and recovering from that and then trying to, to get jobs when companies were closing down. So there was three companies I went for that after I'd been made redundant and I got refused all three of these jobs because I was a woman and they actually told me that. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, what? how do you even know? I can't believe they told you. And one of them was a woman. So I wanted to go work up in Horn Island uh, at the top of Australia. Uh, it's like an island with lots of small aeroplanes flying out to the islands. But as you can imagine, it's Aboriginal community and there's some pilots out there. So it's not, it's no real place for like a young girl. And so she was like, oh, no, a girl crashed an aeroplane um, up here so no one will fly with you because you're a girl oh, and I was like so let me get this right you're not giving me the job because I'm a girl and she's like yeah I was like you're right okay and then oh wow thank you <laughs> well I can't do anything about that <laughs> yeah exactly um, and then the two other jobs I went through my friend and he worked at these companies and he's like look I've spoken to my boss uh, they have to get a motorbike and an airplane every Saturday and so for that reason you can't get the job 
I was like, okay. <laughs> so just for starters, like if we have to get an airplane, uh, sorry, a motorbike into an airplane, I'm definitely going to be able to do that. I might not do it myself, but I will get the job done because that's just like what I do. But I was like, that's fine. And the other one um, who was a guy based in Brisbane and he was so old school and he was like, nope, we had a girl work here and she was highly emotional and so I've learned my lesson <gasps> and, I, and I'm not having girls again. Um, she gets offended. She was always crying and I was like, oh, okay. So what I ended up doing was I was at a loss. I was like, right, so I can't get a job. And I had flown these aeroplanes, chieftains. I had experience for the job. So I ended up um, messaging a chief pilot that was a woman over in Western Australia. And I was like, I'm so desperate for a job. You've got chieftains. I'll come. I'll work hard. Um, And I told her about how I'd I'd struggled. And so I ended up getting a job with them. Like she ended up giving me a job and I started flying around in chieftains in Western Australia. And that was the job that I had just before I went to Skipper's Aviation in Perth. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe just how much... How, how openly they would even knock you back on that ground. Have, have you found over time that it's gotten better and that you've faced less of that? And it, it seems at least from the way there are kind of more female pilots appearing all over the world, maybe not in Australia, but it seems like it's getting a little bit better. Have you found that? Yeah. And so when I when I went to Skippers, there was heaps of girls there. But the thing is, like, we still didn't have female pilot uniforms. So I still had to outsource female pilot shirts because no company had them. And then I was wearing – Oh, was, my gosh. <laughs> I was forever wearing shirts that didn't fit me until I got into uh, – Skippers let me outsource and get my own. And then when I got to Tiger – on my my first day I went to the company that you pick a uniform up from and he was like okay so we don't have female pilot shirts and I was like what do you mean I'm a female pilot and I just got the job at Tiger and he's like yeah like I've got a man's I think it was like a size 12 shirt and it was just like wearing a sack and I was like I don't (laughs) understand this and Tiger were like all over that they were so supportive and they were so excited to have women and so they let me I basically helped design like the new uniform and it was like a woman's uniform it was all tailored and fit perfectly and so we basically just introduced a a grooming standard because they didn't have that so um, like a grooming manual and then I I went and outsourced and found like where we could get female pilot uniforms from and we kind of introduced the female pilot uniform into Tiger. Oh my gosh you really are actually pioneering and like blazing a trail (laughs) for other female pilots it's 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 sad that you have to do that but also exciting that you are able to now as well like even though it's late I guess change is better than no change yeah you're doing such an incredible job to be at the forefront of that I'm sure there are so many young aspiring female pilots who look up to you and really see the fact that you've been able to do it as a beacon of possibility yeah I hope so and I hope it's just more normal now I love social media and that you can use that as a platform now to communicate to people I've uh, I've got pilot friends uh, on Instagram all over the world that I'm like, oh, in America, like I want to pop over and see you or like over here in Stansted, there's pilots here that I want to catch up for coffee. And so even I'm like making new friends and and uh, networking with pilots at this later stage. But for people who are young, it's it's a great way to ask questions and and get like advice. But I think podcasts are an amazing way. Like today you've asked so many valid questions that will help a lot of people like make their decision and just give them the motivation or the inspiration to just start somewhere. Mm. And I also love now following you on social media. I love that you have through that whole journey, now you wear your uniform so proudly and you're like throw on a red lipstick and you're like, (laughs) you know, like I feel like it's beautiful to see that now you do really enjoy being a female pilot and like you're proud of the fact that you can wear lipstick and makeup on the job. 
job and not look like, you know, I look like literally a sack of potatoes when I come off a plane. <laughs> I, I don't know how you still look normal. So how do you, like, I don't, um, I don't get it. <laughs> you're so observant though, because it is funny if you look at like young me, who's like wearing no makeup, I was always dirty from putting oils in. My nails were always ripped <laughs> off. And I was always like, I'm not a female pilot. I'm a pilot. Like, let's just get that straight. And then I just didn't want to be different. And now like I, I went to work, I've only flown with a female captain once at Emirates and it was on International Women's Day a couple of years ago and um, Emirates organized it. It was great. And she's turned up and she's got heels on. She's got her makeup done. She's got red lipstick on. She looked fabulous. She had this little Emirates handbag and then she changed her shoes into her flying shoes when she got on. And I was like, you are all woman. Like, and so much respect. <laughs> Because that was like how I always wanted to be, but I was such a little tomboy and it's been such a long journey to get here. And now it is, as you said, it's so nice to just, and not even just be a woman, like it's just be a normal, you can be who you are in your job, like no matter whether you're feminine or you're a tomboy or not, like you can be whoever you want to be as a female and as a pilot. I think that's such an important point on this day in particular that I think we try and either downplay Sorry, Nick just sneezed. Oh, I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> you, can, you can either downplay or overplay your femininity often because you think that that's the right thing to do in not in protest Ooh. but kind of almost in like statement making rather than just deciding like this is where I sit on the femininity spectrum in normal life. Yeah. So that's how I'm going to sit all the time like rather than forcing it one way or the other. Yeah. And you know what I thought? I was quite worried when I came to Emirates because I had four cabin crew in Tiger and they were like my best mates. Like, they'd pick me up drive me to work we'd get coffees together and then we'd get food and like we'd share food on the airplane and it was amazing but then I was like I'm going to Emirates and now I've got you know 14 cabin crew on a triple seven the the 380 has so many more and I was like that's a lot of girls to like contend with and I'm like you know I'm the different the person that's the pilot so where am I going to fit in Mm. it's like this like sisterhood I've been welcomed like with open arms by all the cabin crew even on this flight to London today like they're just so beautiful they just get behind you they compliment you they tell you how beautiful you are or how like impressed they are by your career or they're just so supportive so it's actually just been it's amazing to meet all these people from all over the world and there's so many people at Emirates as well that are starting to become pilots so they come into the flight deck and they've got their dream and you know it reminds you of when you were 16 and you were starting out so yeah there is nothing cooler I don't think than like literally just rocking out in a female pilot outfit like I just think (laughs) it's the coolest thing in the entire world every time you put up a photo I'm like I want to be her that is so amazing (laughs) you can tell on my Instagram people like I don't care that you're wearing a nice dress I don't care about you doing this I want to see a picture in a pilot uniform as soon as you put up like a picture in uniform (laughs) (laughs) yeah I just like I'm scrolling through all the other stuff I'm like yeah cool Bali cool pool oh my god pilot uniform Yeah, you can tell because they're all the ones that come up and they're always liked. Um. <laughs> you can tell that I just froth other people's lives. Like I love <laughs> I love learning about what people do day to day. I think it's so interesting. I think it's cool what you're doing because I was listening to your podcast and I was like, you're so adaptive. You're probably picking up all these other skills from other people and learning about their career and you're probably like, I could do that or I might do that. So I'm interested in seeing where you end up next actually. You'll be my mentor next. I'll be like, so I'm two hours into my flying career. <laughs> I have no doubt. I would not be surprised if you thought after you're like, I'm starting my helicopter license. <laughs> so having said that about the fact that, you know, it is a very your career is a very, very 
big part of your identity and uh, you're using that platform for such an inspiring and thought-provoking way. It's hard for all of us, I think, to separate our professional identity with our personal identity, but especially for you because the hours it consumes, like the pure time that it actually takes you, you don't kind of clock off when you're on the plane, like you actually still have to land the plane and get off the plane and then turn around. So when you're not being pilot dom or working dom or wife dom, you know, who who are you and how do you play? What are the things that you do to bring you joy that aren't related to flying? So I am in the ocean pretty much. That's what makes me happiest. What I've found, because being in Dubai so far from home, and like you said, like it's a lot of sacrifice to do what we do be away from family, miss birthdays and weddings and and funerals. But I think the way to ground myself and get back to feeling me again, what I'll do is there's a three and a half hour flight to the Maldives. And I know that sounds very lush, but it's not like I fly economy over to the Maldives. I go to a surf resort, which is just owned by a couple of Aussies. Sometimes it doesn't have hot water. And I get in my bikinis, no makeup, and I go surfing. (laughs) It's funny because I found this place. It's owned by a guy that was called Joey and he's from Bagara and that's the place that my mum passed away. So I love going hanging out with Joey and feeling connected, yeah, to my mum and being in the ocean because she loved the ocean and she loved sunrises and sunsets. So I kind of sit there in my bikinis in the Maldives on my surfboard at sunrise or sunset and, like, that's where I kind of, like, yeah, switch off. Oh, that's so beautiful. And it's funny that you you even feel like you need to say, oh, it sounds lush, but but actually if anyone needs that kind of unwinding in nature and deserves to be sort of out really letting your brain have a rest, it's a pilot. I mean, you fly actual people across the earth in the air. Like I think you deserve to be able to unwind and take a break. Exactly. Do you watch TV or anything? Like do you read or? I didn't turn my TV on for two years. Like, Whoa. Uh, it wasn't until I kind of met Jordan. I didn't even really use, I didn't have Netflix my first like year and a half to two years at Emirates. I did a lot of reading. I did like, I love exercise. Like I'm training for the London Marathon at the moment. Amazing. So, yeah. So I love I love to exercise. I love being outside. Um, Dubai is amazing in winter. So there's so much to do. And yeah, I love being like on a beach, anywhere near a beach. So I don't need much. Do you guys get to actually like get off when you get off the plane and you're you know have to do twenty four hours turnaround? Do you leave, do you go into the cities? Yeah, or do you just kind of hang out in a hotel. It's so hard because even like we got into London last night and it was like dark, but it was like six p.m. We've been flying for seven hour flight time but we've been in the plane for over eight hours and Jordan's like should we go to the gym and I'm like see it's so hard for me I can't unwind and I can't think I'm going from work to do more work at the gym I was like it's really hard for me in my head to to just like get out there and be excited about going to the gym Mm -hmm. and Jordan was really good he was like just lie down I'm gonna write you like a little gym workout and he's just kind of eased me into it he's like just start by getting changed we'll get there even if you do half an hour and sometimes you need that push because you're just like I just want to get, go to bed or I just want to, yeah, switch off. But sometimes you need to, you know, sit down, take your uniform off, have a shower, and then you realise you're in a beautiful city and there's so much to see So and you're, you're at the right time of day. So you, you just push through, you go to the city, it makes you tired, and then you come back, you have an amazing rest for your, for your flight the next day. Oh, my gosh. I would, A, not take my uniform off ever, 
I'd just get straight back into it and B, I would be so lazy. Like I live on one time zone. Even when I fly like to go and do a job and it's like a half an hour time difference and we flew to WA recently and I came back, it's like three hours difference and I was so complainy. Like I can't even imagine you having to maintain global time zones all the time. Do you know what's hard? I see all these people travelling for work, especially like models and stuff and they, they fly to LA and they're like, okay, reduce bloating on a flight, don't eat or drink lots of <laughs> water or make sure you do this and that and I was like great fabulous that would really be great but I was like not realistic for someone who's like you know I've got 24 hours and then I'm hopping straight back on a plane and I'm like they make it sound like they've got all these rules that would make your flight so much easier which works for someone like you who's going to do one flight a year one long haul flight a year but for me it's just like dehydration is life like I shake people's hand and they're like oh your hands are dry and I'm like yeah I was like I've been through so much ASOF I could carry a tub around and they're still going to be that way sorry you need to become an ambassador for like some kind of hand cream and like face yeah ASOP help me out (laughs) I think we have maybe six or seven long hauls planned for this year which is like more than usual but even even still for me I'm like I don't actually understand how you do like more than one a week like I just don't understand (laughs) I don't really I don't think I do actually more than two a month I wouldn't say oh really no because we've got like medium haul short haul like I don't know what you call London seven hours and then if you fly to Asia that's about eight or nine hours uh South Africa is like between seven and eight hours so they're like not long haul they're not 14 15 hours and then we fly to India and back so that's still like three to four hour flight time but then you come back so it's all Mm. mixed but being on the airplane it's very fatiguing because it, it vibrates it's dehydrating you're flying against your body clock so there's so much more to being fatigued than not sleeping it's the it's everything yeah oh my god I still I'm just in awe of you and also Jordan like how, <laughs> how does he manage it is he one he sounds like he's quite understanding yeah not all heroes wear capes he's he's so good <laughs> <laughs> I think because it reminds me of when I was leaving Melbourne my boss said to me before I left don't ever tell a guy that you're a female pilot they're not going to like it just don't tell them and I was like that, that doesn't really work but I was like thanks for the advice and one thing about Jordan is because a lot of people do react differently to it, but Jordan was just like, but why wouldn't you want to be with a female pilot? Like, why wouldn't you want to be with someone that like does something really cool like that? And he was just like, you know, it's no biggie. Like he was like really excited about it. And he's, he's never, ever challenged me or pushed me um, or made things hard for me. He's always just been so understanding. And I think it takes a, a certain type of person to be in a relationship with someone long distance and make those sacrifices without even being asked, you know, and without mm-hmm. making a fuss or um, making it about them. He's just like, he sees the benefits. He's like, yeah, I might not see you for six months. Like we commute and see each other once a month, but then we get to see the world. Like we get to have this adventure. So there's so many positives to it, but it takes someone that's understanding and, and adaptable, I guess, and dynamic yeah. in their approach to life, I think. Oh, well, it's so glad. I'm so, so glad for you that you found a fellow adventurer to enjoy the benefits of it together with. That's beautiful. Yeah. So to finish up, what are the three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation? Three interesting things. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, I've gone really heavy on the pilot aircraft (laughs) aviation thing. So anything else really qualifies as something we haven't talked about. (laughs) Well, I think that 
people didn't know that I was half Mauritian. So a lot of things, like people say to me, you've got a really nice tan. They're like, <laughs> uh, they're like they, see, they hear the Australian accent. They see them from Australia and they don't actually understand that I'm half Mauritian as well. Yeah, um, I only knew, and that's why, you know, at the beginning when you were like, we didn't grow up speaking Creole. I'm like, most people didn't grow up speaking Creole. But then I was like, oh, wait, I forgot your dad's Mauritian. Me <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, my parents didn't teach me either. <laughs> <laughs> actually one thing that people don't know is so obviously my dad took us to Mauritius when I was 14 but I didn't go overseas until I was 25 my first holiday with my friends overseas was 25 because I had no money and I was paying back debt oh, oh my one god thing that <laughs> it's a sad story but I don't think people realize that especially when they see my Instagram or me working at Emirates I don't think that they would believe that because the cabin crew are flying to every continent in the world at 21 yeah so I'm like I'm stoked for them because I'm like I would have loved that at 21 that's so cool I love that that you're like late bloomer but now you're just like living on different continent every minute that's so cool (laughs) massive late bloomer (laughs) Uh, what's, Um, what's maybe one thing that you can't travel without like that you always take with you on every plane like do you take a handbag or you you guys take carry on right yeah, my so we've got our um, cabin bag, which is like the carry on, and then we've got our check luggage, which we we check in when we get to the airport. But inside my bag, this is that would be make a great podcast. Like, what's inside this pilot's bag? And like, we go through and yeah. it in there. food always, mm-hmm. snacks just in case. Yep, pack and lunch, great. Yeah, huge makeup bag full of like moisturizers, face wipes, like because I love taking off my makeup and keeping my face hydrated, and then resetting on the ground so we get after all the passengers get off go to the toilet put a new set of makeup on just like some tinted moisturizer even Mm. and feel fresh because there's nothing worse than walking through the airport after a 15-hour flight like feeling like death and you've got to walk through all these people (laughs) what else do I have in there I have my Pokefy which is like a it's a little Wi-Fi and it works like almost all over the world. It's like a, the size of an iPhone and you turn it on and it connects like a Wi-Fi router. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so that's always in my bag. And a battery pack because obviously like we travel everywhere so our phone's always dying on different time zones and you can only charge <laughs> if you're at the hotel and things like that. So I've always got that. Oh, very, very practical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very boring but lots of food in there. <laughs> and uh, the last question since I love quotes so much, what's your favourite quote? All my favorite quotes are to do with success or like risk taking. Mm-hmm. So there's a quote that's by T.S. Eliot and it's, you've probably heard it. It's only those who risk going too far can truly find out how far it's possible to go. Oh, that's so perfect for you. Yeah, I really can relate <laughs> to that. So yeah, I've heard that a long time ago and it's always like written somewhere in my diary. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, Dom, thank you so, so much for joining at such an early hour for you when I know that your 24 hours is very, very precious. <laughs> no, my pleasure. I've had a good time. It's nice sharing my story. And the best story to hear on International Women's Day. I'm in such, such admiration of you and can't wait to see what you do next. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe a podcast, Sarah. Who knows? Oh, please. I'll teach <laughs> you to podcast if you teach me to fly. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a deal. <laughs> I am still so impressed by Dom and her incredible career. If you want to check out some of her adventures, she has the coolest Instagram name as well, domcot.com. Of course, if you enjoyed listening, please also tag her when you share the episode. I'm sure it would brighten up her day after a long flight. I know it absolutely makes my day seeing your tags and shares come through and what you take away from each chat. Thank you all so much for taking the time. Same goes with reviews, and I know I mention it every week, but we've had over a million days 
downloads and less than a thousand reviews from those. So if you're enjoying the show, please do take a quick minute to leave some thoughts or even just five stars and keep us on the charts. It really helps new listeners to find us, but also helps us keep locking in those amazing guests. Hope you have a great week and International Women's Day. For those of you in Melbourne, I'm hosting a very exciting event for Nike on the day if you want to join. Head over to my Instagram, Spoonful of Sarah, to find out more. I can't wait to share the next International Women's Day episode too, so stay tuned. Hope you're having an amazing day and are seizing your yay.